The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. We talk about it as the gateway to the East, but of course, for the bulk of the human experience, where all the exciting history in the story of the world has happened, which is in the East, it was this sort of strange place right on on the edge of the Western world. So I think it's really critical to completely reset your mindscape when you're thinking about that landscape. That was Bethany Hughes talking about the need to shift our understanding of Istanbul's place in world history. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Matt Elton, Reviews Editor of BBC History magazine. This is a special World Histories edition of the History Extra podcast. BBC World Histories is a new, bi-monthly title from the BBC History magazine team, which explores stories from our global past and the historical context behind the defining issues of the 21st century. For our first issue, On Sale Now, Bethany Hughes met up with fellow historian Peter Frankpan to discuss her new book, Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities. Bethany is an award-winning author and broadcaster, and Peter is the author of the best-selling Silk Roads, A New History of the World, So as you can imagine, it was a lively conversation, exploring centuries of the city's history. Of all the cities in the world, why Constantinople? Uh, I think there was both a professional and a personal reason for that. So the professional reason was that, as you know, there are tunnels that have been dug under the Bosphorus and a whole new metro system in Istanbul. And what that means for somebody who's particularly interested in the ancient past and in prehistory is that there was a whole load of new archaeology that I knew hadn't been published and kind of needed to be shared really so it felt like in terms of fresh evidence it was the right time to do the city so that was the the kind of professional academic reason the personal reason was that I was so sick of hearing people say that Byzantium was just a tiny insignificant little fishing village and that Constantinople was one of the other civilizations and one of the centrally important civilizations and as you know every time we open a paper we're being asked to have an opinion on Turkey on what's happening in Istanbul on the way that that whole landmass is facing so it felt to me that we had to try to dig deeper down into the history so at least we can have an informed opinion but for you as a classicist um, if I if if, in that manifestation what did Byzantion because you start your book right at the very beginning yeah um, what, what did it mean to you as a classicist? Because Constantinople becomes something great, but, but once upon a time, it was a fishing village. Well, I wouldn't ever say it was actually a fishing village because I think that prehistory has shown us that it was something a bit different. So uh, you know um, from the book that I start off with the fact that the world's oldest wooden coffin has been found in, in one of the digs there. And there was this... Healthy little community that was really managing to make quite a life 
for itself 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, we I think probably 9,000 years ago. So it wasn't as though the Greeks came, listened to the oracle, thought, I'm going to head east, I'm going to do that Greek colonising thing. You know, almost certainly there was already quite a vibrant trading settlement there on the Thracian side, on the European side. And actually the Greeks just spend a bit of time, they end up on the Asian side in Chalcedon, kind of think, well, we'll wait a bit and then we'll, we'll have a go at this place that we're going to call Byzantium. But I think they didn't go immediately because it was probably so busy and the archaeology is showing us that, that that's the case. But also, it's because it's one of those very interesting places that even if it doesn't appear to be driving ancient history, it quietly is. So it's turning up on uh, a lot of steely. So we see the word Byzantium carved. So we know that it's being referred to, it's being thought about in economic and political terms. It turns up in sanctuaries. So there's a native population, Greek population from Byzantium who are dedicating things at the great sanctuaries of Olympia. When there's uh, any kind of a conflict involving either the Athenians or the Spartans or the Persians, something always happens in that city, Byzantium. So it's almost like this kind of sleeper state that is causing a uh, reaction that people are fascinated by, but it's kind of hasn't, in the classical period, it just hasn't made its mark yet as a self-standing independent civilization. So it's, so it's kind of the... It's almost the shape around the whole. I remember an artist saying to me, you can only paint a painting properly, not if you paint the object itself, but if you paint the space around it. I almost think that that's what Byzantium is in terms of ancient civilization. But its geography is very important. I mean, you said it's on the edge of, uh, on, on, the, on the Bosphorus overlooking Asia Minor, in fact, Asia. Do you think that that role of Constantinople being seen as the crossroads between East and West is that, is that a useful way of looking at the city over, over the whole period of time? By doing that, is it easy to build these kind of boundaries that aren't there? Because Istanbul today is not a city divided by anything other than a bridge. And you, you would never talk about Edinburgh being like that. You would never talk about other cities that have a bridge spanning. You'd never talk about the Thames as being entirely different. Does our, does our sort of artificial sense of geography impact how we look at the city? I think that's very astute and absolutely right. Because, of course, it's all made up. You know, we think there are things called continents, but these are only things that we've called continents. You know, we think there's Asia and Europe, but that's just those are just words that um, weren't understood by many hundreds of thousands of people who lived in the place that we now call Istanbul. So I think that's absolutely right. And not only that, not only are there kind of fake divisions in time and space when you look at the history of a city like Istanbul, we're also looking at it from completely the wrong side of the compass. So it's as important, actually, if you look at the story of North and South, because, of course, the Bosphorus also links the Black Sea down to the Mediterranean. We talk about it as the gateway to the East. But, of course, for the bulk of the human experience, where all the exciting history in the story of the world has happened, which is in the East, it was this sort of strange place right on, on the edge of, of the Western world. So I think it's really critical to completely reset your mindscape when you're thinking about that landscape. And how does one do that effectively? I mean, we, ha we live in a world where we, we use the word Mediterranean, the centre of the world. Uh, we have a, a sense you know, of calling the Mediterranean the cradle of civilization. Uh, you know, we teach Latin and Greek and see that as, as classics, you know, with a big C. Uh, and we have a concept of a world that is a sort of hermetically sealed one that exists only in the West. I mean, this Mediterranean, in fact, even that's misleading because we never really think about 
the countries in North Africa as being Mediterranean. Somehow they're different. I mean, how does one get away from that? How does one open up? How does one expand horizons so that you see Byzantium and then Constantinople and then Istanbul as being a pivot that, that is fanning out in all these 360 degrees? Because as you say, we see it as, as being on the edge rather than the centre. I think we have to make a bit of effort. And that's something that, Peter, you've obviously done in your book, Silk Road. So I read that very early and it was immensely refreshing at last to see the story of the world told in a different place. I remember you starting the introduction because you said you were lying on your bed as a teenager and you looked at this map and there was just all this space, this huge amount of geographical presence that you know you nothing about and yet you kind of had a sense that it, that it really mattered. And that's our failing as a civilization, and it's critical that it's a failing that we address now because although we talk in philosophical terms about the need to be citizens of the world, physically and physiologically, we are global citizens now, whatever that means. So we, we are doing ourselves the most enormous disservice if we don't understand uh, both that we need to look at the world from a different angle and also actually that they're a kind of deeply, acutely relevant histories there that impacts on our day-to-day -day lives. So I think we all just have to make a bit of effort to do it. And I also think there's something very interesting, there's very interesting kind of neurological slants on this as well, that the, you, you'll know this, there's this brilliant word, which is, there are many beautiful words, but I think it's possibly the word I love most in the world, which is this word which we think starts off in Proto-Indo-European as gosti, G-H-O-S-T-I which gives us the words guest and host and ghost. So it's this notion that a guest and a host are one and the same thing. It's a ghost because a ghost is a visitor and we don't know whether that visitor is going to be welcome or, or unwelcome. And then through a very kind of uh, convoluted um, uh, kind of ling linguistic stream, that ends up as the Greek xenia, so guest-host friendship. And it's a really difficult word to translate and I think it's one of the most important words that we should all have in our vocabulary. And it's this notion that rather than being afraid of the unknown, we should always welcome the stranger or strange things or new ideas across our, our threshold. So that's, in cultural terms, this word xenia, I think, is critically important. I think that's what kickstarts civilization. When there's this kind of unspoken etiquette that we see this little dot, dot of warriors or figures on the horizon. And rather than immediately rushing to pick up our spears and thinking these are enemies, we decide to take the risk and think actually they might kill us, but they might make our world and our lives better. So we'll wait and see what they're going to bring. But what's very interesting, going back to the, this idea of neurology and neuroscientifically, is that's now what neuroscientists tell us our brains are set up to do, that we crave disturbance, we crave the strange, we crave difference and that's when we are the best humans that we can be when we're engaging with something different so I think that as I said in kind of grand cultural and philosophical terms but also just constitutionally acknowledging the unknown and recognizing that we can benefit from it is something that we have to do and it's a very difficult balance you know I know that talking in 2016 after a a difficult Brexit summer and then watching a, a particularly poisonous US presidential election that um, 
it's a very difficult balance of, of welcoming the unknown and then in a world we live in today, trying to fight it away and to try to revert to some idea of homogeneity where everybody is somehow similar and that other people, whether they're refugees, whether they're Mexican immigrants in the States, whether it's uh, China, whether it's Russia, uh, you know, that we have a, a real preponderance to, to not want disturbance right now. How do you, I mean, when you write a big history of a massively cosmopolitan, open-looking city like Constantinople, Istanbul, do you see, there are obviously waves at which all times, peoples and cities and cultures will turn in on themselves. How do you see that? I mean, for example, with iconoclasm or the, the period after the Islamic conquest, the Arab conquests of the seventh century, where Constantinople has to reduce itself, has to reduce its horizons, has to deal with those generals who arrive on horses who are clearly not well disposed and are looking to splinter. How, how does one chart these rhythms and these big waves over, you know, because it's such an ambitious book to cover 3,000 years. I'm not, well, I mean, you start even earlier, yeah. but I mean... 10,000 um, years, 10,000 years, yeah, I take my hat off to that. Can you get a sense of ideas being, using the brain, opening up and closing again to these, these receptors? Can, could you get a sense of that in the... I think, I think you do, and I think there's something very particular about the topography of Istanbul, actually, which allows it, even if it has those moments of closing down. And as you know only too well, it's a walled city from very, very early in its history. We now think um, from its ancient Greek iteration that there are walls there. And also, excitingly, where the wooden coffin was found, we found some of those great big massive stock, uh, stones, the blocks that Constantine the Great set up. So we've actually kind of seen that really big early... Uh, wall building project so because it's a walled city exactly as you say it can tend to have um it never completely embraces it but there's always a danger that a siege mentality is going to set in that you you try to keep everything safe and secure and unchanging within those walls but what i think happens is because of the way that geographically Istanbul is set up, you always have these satellite settlements as well, which are all now part of Greater Istanbul. So we talked about Chalcedon on the other side, Chrysopolis, that then becomes Uskutari and Uskadar. Uh, you have the settlements stretching up the Golden Horn. And it's almost as if that little central historical hub of Istanbul is never allowed to forget that there are other lines of communication. So I think even that's actually what saves it. So even though there are moments, as you say, when it closes off, when the, you know, the kind of religious tension around the time of iconoclasm makes it a much smaller place uh, at some points in its Islamic history, it, it's never allowed to be parochial. It always has to be cosmopolitan. It's funny how we look at walls. I mean, we tend to think of walls as being built to keep people out. But actually, they also, as you say, they, they keep people in and it creates the airs of superiority. It creates a sort of urban or metropolitan elite or liberal elite, I suppose we call it today, of people who are wealthy and, you know, know the good things in life. And people who live beyond the walls, you know, are literally out of towners and therefore sort of uh, not, not seen the right way. So it's a kind of magnet mm. um, as a city, bringing people in from all, all, all over. And, and, and what's very interesting, it's always been a city that's hosted refugees as well. You know this kind of uh, very well. I mean, there's particular moments um, kind of from the 4th century AD um, up until the 12th, arguably, where it became the refugee city, where you knew that if you kind of said the right thing, if you had the ear of the emperor or whoever was in, in charge, you would be allowed to come into that city as a refugee. And that carries on, that's a tradition that carries 
right on through to modern history. So with the great kind of revolts of the 19th century, it becomes a place that liberals go to. In the Second World War, it takes in a huge number of Jews from Paris, for instance. So that's also, I think, one of the reasons it's a special city, and I think that's one of, the, the, one of its saving graces, that because it's a city of the mind as well as a city of the place, exactly as you say, this notion that you have, there is this sort of perfect thing within those walls. That's where it becomes a place of security and sanctuary as well. So, and it's, you know, very interesting that today there are more refugees in Istanbul than any other city in the world um, and more than there have been at any other time uh, in the human experience as well. If I was going to, I mean, and I'm, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's a serious question, I think, uh, because it speaks to what it is that you reacted to best, I guess. You know, it's a magical city, um, Constantinople, Istanbul. I mean, I, I remember going there as a boy for the first time when I was, must have been eight or nine years old and the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I, I'd never seen anything like it. I, I was The scale, the buildings, this sort of layered past, uh, you know, it, it speaks very powerfully to those who have been there and lucky enough to go have been there. But if you could pick, so let's say, three periods or windows, uh, you know, who, what would you have liked to have seen? Um, what period would you like to be there in the Byzantine age or in the Ottoman age and maybe in the pre-Christian era or, you know, when it, uh, older in antiquity that, that speaks to you somehow of a particularly exciting or challenging or difficult period? Who are the characters in the city? Because it's the people who make it come to life mm. as well as the, um, the monuments. When, when, when would you... Uh, like to go back in our virtual time machine. <laughs> or not even virtual. I've just been talking to a physicist who, who has now assured me that time travel is possible. So <laughs> you never know. This, this, this could but scientists, they always say that things can't happen, then it turns out that they can. You yeah, can't cure exactly, things. In, exactly. Well, this is Carlo Rovelli, so, you know, who's basically okay, so rewriting the story. He does know, what he's, he does about, know what, right? what he's talking about, rewriting the story of, of, of physics. So that was quite exciting. So yeah. when you get in his time machine that he's built. Exactly. Where which you, where he's promising to, to, to let us know when, yeah. he's, when he's manufactured it. Um, I think I have to go back to that very earliest age, that prehistorical moment. Um, I think because it's been so neglected by historians and archaeologists um, and it has so annoyed me as a Hellenophile, the fact that people always say it all started with the Greeks and I just knew that wasn't, that couldn't be the case and so it's been very lovely uh, and actually I was lucky enough to go to the digs when they were happening so I went down and saw some of this extraordinary stuff coming out of the earth. So we have hundreds of Neolithic footprints. So we have the footprints in the Bosphoran mud of those first people who walked to what we now call Istanbul um, 8,000, 9,000 years ago. And I think, as I said before, there's just something, I have such respect for that age. So this is a time where life is really, really seriously tough. And you might end up living in a small community with people you really dislike personally, but you just have to get on with it. And like, yet, a, like a university college. It's example. very yeah. much, that's how I yeah. absolutely it's not like that, it's, see it. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, you know, in those environments, we know that they're creating art, they're making beautiful musical instruments. I mean, this, this goes right back. Again, you know this, the sort of, I don't know, there's just something I love the fact that if you look at the birth of the modern mind, if we put that at about 40,000 years ago, one of the first things we decide to do is to make a flute out of the, the thigh bone of a vulture. You know, can you imagine the other things that you could be doing with your time? You think, I know, this is, this, this is, this is what I want to do. So I think the fact that we can trace that early, remarkable, exciting moment in the human 
human experience in Istanbul. Tell me about some of the, the characters and yes. the people yes. that, that, so, you, that you do come across, because your book does sparkle with um, these, you know, it, it, like all cities, uh, Constantinople is filled with its um, anecdotes, but as an imperial city, the, the smell of power, of intrigue, of gossip is never too far away. Of course. So give us a couple of, of the bits that you really enjoyed writing. Because I can tell you, you loved writing this book. Yes. Right? Ambitious and huge in scope. Um, but w w which were the purple bits? Well, for good colour, by the way, yes. Very good colour. I'm wearing purple um, in honour of that particular period. Uh, it's in... the imperial colour for listeners who are not... Please study the Byzantine Empire. Yes, yes it's, uh, exactly. Protected. So Bethany's well-dressed today. Yeah, I am. And I've even got a purple pencil, I see. Yeah. So there we are. Subconsciously, I'm doing something. And I think we have to look. It might not be an answer that surprises you, but I do love Theodora. Empress Theodora, um, who is there in the sixth century, uh, her story is well known. Uh, well, actually, it's not—it's not as well known as it should be. And our issue is the sources that we have for her story. Is it all made up? So the the version that we're given her um, by tell, tell us about Theodora. So we're told that Theodora was a very poor girl. Uh, whose father was a bear trainer and tamer, and she worked in the in and around the centre of, of uh, Constantinople, particularly in and around the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome was a very exciting place at this time. We're talking about the 6th century. 6th century AD. Um, because this is the new Rome, of course, and because they're new Romans, they love their chariot racing. Um, because they don't like killing each other. Gladiator contests go with Christianity because spilling another man's blood is uh, you know, considered to be wrong. Exactly. Suddenly they get more squeamish about that. They, there's a possibility, isn't there? They might still be executing a few criminals, but not, but not many, I But think. not enjoying it. Not well, enjoying it. So well, yeah. exactly. So they say. So they've replaced it with this high octane, incredibly competitive uh, sporting faction culture. So, and chariot racing is that chariots are the ultimate sport. And it, any any like of Formula, us like Formula One, no one can ever overtake each other. And uh, yeah, kind of like form like everything, every competitive exciting. sport that you can imagine um, combined. Formula One. I mean, if you have, you, I'm sure you've been in Istanbul when there's a big football match on, and the kind of heat of the and intensity of the passion of the crowds there are but nothing in comparison to what it would have been I'm when sure the chariots right. were racing. Partly because the, the whole point, I mean, the problem with Formula One, I think, if you want to go and watch one of these races, which I haven't, it's, it costs four or five hundred quid for a ticket. <laughs> yes. So the only people who come want cucumber sandwiches. Uh, whereas the chariot races, it's the whole city there, divided into four different teams cheering for their heroes. Absolutely. The reds, the whites, the blues and the greens. And you and there were sort of political parties, really, weren't they, as well? It wasn't, this wasn't just sport. Anyway, so it really mattered, the chariot racing. And the entertainments that happened around that were critical. So there was a lot of, I think we can probably say, quite um, uh, titillating um, entertainment that happened in the Hippodrome. And what we're told is that young Theodora uh, was one of the girls that was sort of put out uh, to entertain, that she was a, a, an erotic dancer, a gymnast. She had a particular, one of her particularly um, the kind of most famous uh, acts was to reenact the story of Leda and the Swan. So Leda being, of course, the Spartan mother of Helen of Troy, who Leda herself was supposed to be perfectly beautiful. The god Zeus, the Greek god Zeus, was so enraptured with Leda that he had to have her, so he turned himself into a giant swan and came down and raped her on the banks of the river Eurotas. And young
young Theodora used to reenact this, and we're told that she did it with grain and a goose. Allegedly. We need to Allegedly. say that for the case the Byzantine lawyers are listening. <laughs> and there were many, many oh. of them. <laughs> Where do you think Roman law comes from? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, sorry. Pretty yeah. good. No, yeah. well, you're absolutely right. Pretty good at their job. So this is all allegedly because Theodora was written about by a man called Procopius, who uh, writes a very lovely, uh, supportive work on the buildings of uh, Theodora and what will be her husband, Justinian, the great emperor Justinian. And then he writes a secret history, and this is where we hear all this more salacious stuff about Theodora. What's really amazing about her? So just to kind of give you a very, very brief biography. So she starts out this, she basically goes on a sort of journey around the eastern Mediterranean, becomes a Christian along the way, we're told, comes back into the city, sort of having slept her way up, uh, you know, uh, ever-increasing ranks of officials, catches the eye of Justinian, who changes the law so that he can marry her. So suddenly, the erotic dancer is the empress of the great civilization of Byzantium. And this is Byzantium at its greatest. So it's, uh, I think it's a million square miles, isn't it? Is that right? Of, of land, it's about... I wonder if this wasn't all made up, because you know uh, as well, if not better than I, what is very interesting about her and her partner, I'd say her lover, it seems to me that they really do have this passionate, close relationship, Justinian and Theodora, is that they work together to reform law. So Justinian's code, so-called, means, as you say, that we have the, the basis of, of European law, and a lot of work is done to kind of clean up and tidy up and gather together all the Roman law that's been around now, but up until that point. But Theodora is really interesting because the things that she, we know that she does is that she sets up a safe house for prostitutes, that they um, make more harsh the penalties for rape and for pimping. Um, uh, they try to protect a number of prostitutes. That seems to me that that's a girl who's had some experience of the rough side of life, or she's just got great imagination and she's some kind of proto-feminist, which is more unlikely, it seems to me. So I wonder, actually, if by her deeds we get a hint at her early life. And, and why should we think that that was an issue, in a way? Because if you didn't have wealth or standing in a city like Byzantium, Constantinople, how, how did you pay your way? How did you put bread on the table? And for women, through the story of history, that's been erotic dancing, prostitution, has been one of the greatest, most tenacious, greatest as in has happened to the most people, tenacious way to stay alive. So I think maybe that was how Theodora started off in life. But isn't it remarkable that she ends up being the most powerful woman in the known world with her reforming, socially driven, set of principles which she enacts and incarnates in the buildings around Constantinople. And do you think you'd have gone on with her? Gosh, she looks pretty fierce. If you look at that, uh, the representation we have of her uh, from Ravenna in the mosaics, these flashing dark eyes. I think I might have gone on with her because she was very keen on um, uh, hot baths and bathing. She used to go over, she used to go over to Asia and spend a lot of time in the steam rooms. It might be, she actually died, we think, uh, probably of breast cancer when she was around 42. So it might have been that she was trying to alleviate those symptoms. Uh, I, oh, she'd have outdone me in every way. But I, I suspect I'd have been happy to spend 24 hours in her company. And at that time, of course, one of the greatest monuments of the whole city was built uh, in the 6th century. T tell us about Hagia Sophia, because the, the, the built environment of Constantinople and Istanbul is fundamental to understanding. This, this is a city that is about prestige, it's about power, it's about messaging, not just to the inhabitants of showing what a great city it is, it's very self-consciously showing that this is a, 
uh, a settlement that is filled with not just civilization, but it means it means business. It's on a scale that is un, 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 unheard of in Europe, and in fact, it's on a scale that only you find um, parallels in in Asia. T tell us about the building of Hagia Sophia and. And the building, the building in Constantinople, in fact, of these great buildings over time. And also, what it says is that it's the earthly home of the one true God. You know, this is we, we, we're kind of really missing a trick. We don't talk about that incredible spiritual importance of that city that they really did think. So this was founded as the capital of of Christendom. Constantine the Great had converted. At what point in his life we don't know, but it was very. It would have been very clear to those inhabitants that this was where the kind of radioactive centre of God's power lay um, in the temporal world. And Hagia Sophia was right at the very heart of that. What an extraordinary building. If you still, if you go to Istanbul today, even though it's quite dark, almost its darkness sucks you in when you look at the silhouetted profile of the historical city. And what's extraordinary is that that is the kind of negative film negative opposite of what it would have been in the medieval world when people talk about it constantly as glittering with light. So it was filled with tens of thousands of lamps. It was lit on the outside as well as the inside. It would have been this kind of pulsing beacon for those who passed along the Bosphorus up the Sea of Marmara. Um, all the surfaces inside were also reflective. So there was silver, there was polished marble, uh, there was gold, there was mosaic. Again, many, many lamps inside. So it had this uh, kind of luminous iridescence to it. I mean, I, I, that's why I've written this book, actually, was like you. I went, I wasn't quite eight or nine, but I was 18. And I travelled from the east, interestingly, that's how I came to the city. I didn't come from the west, I came from the east. And I landed and walked up to Isophia and w w went into the doors and just thought, this is the story of the world right here. And this is something I have to understand. So it is, I, I would argue, asked about the characters, in a way, that's the, almost the most important surviving character of the city. And, and I would argue it's the most beautiful building on earth. And, you know, that's saying something in a world where, you know, we've seen, even if you haven't been there, you've seen what the Taj Mahal looks like. We've seen the Great Wall of China. You've seen sort of buildings all around the world. So we have a sort of pretty good sample set. So you can imagine that for someone from the countryside or from uh, from Kiev, the, the Vikings who settled in and built up the city of Kiev, when they come down the rivers to the Black Sea and come up to Constantinople a thousand years ago, what effect it must have had on them? I mean, we have sources which talk about it, that people's breath being taken away. I mean, mm. you, how, how did it feel, the city in the Middle Ages, when, when, when we, it really is a cosmopolitan centre mm. uh, connecting... Uh, right the way across Asia with travellers and visitors coming from as far away as the Himalayas and from Iceland. How would, how, would, how would the city have been different, I suppose? How would you see the city a thousand years ago? Well, I think, I mean, just as you said, the Vikings, we know the Vikings were there in, in uh, all the Rus or whoever, you know, whatever we're going to describe them in Isophia itself. Um, the, the kind of runes are quite famous, but... The cheeky graffiti. Cheeky graffiti, which is very lovely, which you can read about in the book. Uh, but I'm not sure what it is. Well, I don't know, maybe we should, it's, it is, you do read about it in the book, but I mean, one, I don't know, maybe we should be grateful for this graffiti. He's done us a favour. Yes. Viking lad probably uh, on, uh, you know had a few to drink yeah. and thinks being clever he might just carve his name in. In, in, name in, in name in the marble actually I'll tell you what the graffiti I was talking about is do you remember we've just identified the boat 
So somebody's also carved, uh, um, as well as the runes, they, they've kind of scratched, they've scratched the boat with a, with a kind of dragon-headed prow, really, which we didn't know were there until a couple of, couple of years ago. So there could be a lot more graffiti. Yes. Um, in I love it. Ice One of the Scandinavian kings um, visits Constantinople in, uh, in the beginning of the 12th century and gives to Alexius Komnenos, who's my sort of hero, emperor, uh, hero period, as well as a, as a Byzantine specialist. Uh, he gives him a Viking ship with a detachable dragon-headed prow, <laughs> which, you know, you wonder, I mean, like getting a sort of dodgy jumper for Christmas. <laughs> well, what do you do with it? And do, does it come out often? And if so, how and why? And what would people think of you? And one of the, I mean, it's, it, it, there's something in, in the, there's a question there too, which is that when you have a city that is imperial in its projection and in its certainty, about the home of God, you know, about the home of the emperor and the seat of power. How easy is it to be tolerant of new ideas and of new people coming in? Is it, is it as simple as just to think that this is a city and a culture that is, is constantly open, both under the Byzantines and then under the Ottomans in 1453? How, how, do, how do these foreigners, the Xenia, how does that change, or does it change over time? Well, I think there's, I think there's, a, there's a very kind of functional answer to that. That it is all of these things. It's an imperial city. It's a religious city. It's also a trading city. So there are ports dotted around um, the, the kind of historic edge of both the old Istanbul and, of course, Galata and uh, Chalcedon and uh, um, the settlements along the Sea of Marmara all have their ports as well, right up the Bosphorus too. <laughs> And if you are a port city, you have to get on with other people. That You know, this lingua franca, you know, comes from that Byzantine civilization because people had to have a way of understanding one another. You are forced to have a cosmopolitan outlook if you're having to. You've got to, you know, trade your currants or your bales of linen or whatever it is, you know, the currants that are going to end up on the table of Queen Elizabeth I, as we now know, you know, the reason that Queen Elizabeth I had such terrible teeth is because of all those that love, the lovely sweet things that came over from the Ottoman world. So currants in particular, sugar grown on Cyprus. You know, we all sort of think of sugar as being a, a something which has come, comes in with the West Indian slave trade. And of course, it's much, much earlier than that. It's coming from Ottoman lands. So again, I think that's what that, that it does force a, an open-mindedness, which explains to me why those civilizations and all their iterations lasted so long. You know, the new Rome lasted almost longer than the... Old Rome, Byzantium lasts a, a thousand years. The Ottoman Empire is, is pretty robust for 400 years, or at least 350 is pretty robust. So, and that, that is because you've got this invigorating um, external influence. The, the transition from uh, Greek Christian Constantinople to Turkish Muslim Constantinople, to Constantinople. It has always got this special place in Islamic literature and in the Islamic mind, as uh, we're told that there are hadiths that said that Constantinople had to be conquered. Initially, of course, they were monotheist allies, but then there's this notion that is it the great city that the greatest Muslim armies have to take. Um, and, and they do try to take, take it pretty quickly. So throughout the second half of the seventh century, the first half of first kind of quarter of the eighth century, there are Arab sieges and there are Muslim armies that 
pretty much, they're pretty close to taking Constantinople. And because they don't, it becomes the prize that it's ever more important to get because of that initial failure. It, then in the kind of myth-making of the city, once it is taken by the Ottoman Turks after 1453, then we start to hear a lot that actually the Arabs had already got there and these sort of Islamic commandos had gone in and they hanged people as kind of retribution for their treatment and that there are Arab shrines and some of the most sacred uh, shrines in the Islamic world are in Istanbul and it was said that these were the burial places of those that had gone prophet bearer uh, the standard bearer of the prophet Muhammad and he's buried there for instance so it was remarkably important if not as a strategic prize as an intellectual and spiritual prize for the Islamic world. So we know that it's talked of, it's, um, what's the word? It's depicted in, uh, in miniatures. There's, there are lots of images of Constantinople as this place that needs to be taken throughout the story uh, of Islam. And then, of course, the Ottoman Turks, who've come from a very different part of the world, so they haven't come from the south, they've come from the the step from Central Asia, you know, they've come as these kind of semi-nomadic tribes from the end of the 13th century onwards. They're slowly heading further and further, further, further west, and they start to ring, they take all the, the cities. Again, I think we sort of think of 1453 as this coming out of nowhere, and suddenly the Ottoman Turks come and Constantinople falls, and they're in there, and it's a newly Islamic city. And, of course, the Ottomans have been nibbling away at the territories around, so they've taken Nicaea, they've taken Bursa, they're over in Europe, they've taken much of the Ignatian Way, and Constantinople, which is really, really denuded and pretty derelict come the beginning of 1453 is the is the last to fall but it was very very important for those ottomans to take that city because of what was said about it in islamic literature beforehand and from 1517 although they actually don't make much play of it in the 16th century it becomes much more important in the 18th and 19th centuries this but from 1517 this is where the caliph sits so istanbul is the center of the caliphate and it's a caliphate that lasts until 1922 24. We spend a lot of time, uh, you know, worrying about, as historians, about continuities and, um, uh, and, and, and change. And with the sense of Istanbul after 1453 and sort of the, the decades that followed, uh, do, do you, you see, I mean, I know, I know cause I've read your book, but you, you see that the city becomes an imperial capital again. I mean, it's sort of, as you just described it, uh, slightly forlorn. Uh, depopulated, you know, there's obviously much less money to go around, and it's a sort of matter of time, I suppose, before the city falls. Uh, but then it, it takes on this new sparkling life. T tell us about the life under the Ottomans and, and which bits you found um, most most fun to write about. Well, I think I think it, it, it becomes a very different city in some ways, and that there are some continuities, actually, because, of course, the Virgin Mary is very important to... Uh, Islamic Islamic faith, you know, she turns up more in the Quran than she does in the New Testament. So that tradition of icon worship and of Mary being a, a figure who was adored and 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 really quasi divine continues through into the Ottoman world. So we know that kind of Mary was very important to them. And even if you go to Istanbul today, there'll be very uh, traditionally religious Muslim families who might well have an icon of Mary. And, and what always used to happen is they'd scratch off little bits of the paint and they thought that these were kind of, you know, magical. And this, this was happening up until 10, 15 years ago. So there are these kind of little, little moments of continuity. But my goodness, what energy it has when those Ottomans who are very proud of their nomadic culture, you know, a lot of their architecture does still 
still look like extraordinary tents. They're very keen on their horses. They have this stem cell sense of travel and traveling. So it's doubly exciting when you're suddenly in one place and in one of the most beautiful places on earth. And so the vim and vigor and dynamism with which they beautify that city is extraordinary. And of course, there are, um, it's a very multi-ethnic um, empire. There's a lot of influences. Sinan, much debated what Sinan's origins were, whether he was Armenian or Greek. He was the great Turkish. Ottoman architect. The great yeah. Ottoman, Ottoman architect, exactly, whose um, fingerprints we can still see on the, on the skyline of Istanbul today. Built just remarkable buildings, and they're now being looked at very interestingly. We now realise that they were incredibly holistic, these buildings, that we know that they're beautiful, we know that they function well, but they were designed as whole soundscapes because there's been recent restoration, um, and we realise that in the domes of some of the mosques, he's got upturned terracotta pots. So it's creating this extraordinary acoustic, which means that when you praise... Allah, it multiplies and magnifies it. So Allah is being praised a thousand times more than he would be naturally. So then my last question is about the, the, the shape and the weight of the book, because it feels that you, you, you don't really want to talk about the 20th century much beyond the, 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 name, the name change of the city. Yeah. So t- tell us first of all about when it gets changed from being Constantinople to being called Istanbul and why. Mm. And also how you saw, because it's very difficult to work out start and end points. How do you feel the weight of that? Yes. I, th- I wanted to, I think re- there could be a whole, to be honest, second volume of the 20th century. So we'll t- we'll explain, where, where, do you, where do you hang up your cloak? I hang up my cloak at 1924. So this is the moment where uh, officially Istanbul is no longer the capital of that mass. So it's no longer the Ottoman Empire. It's now the Turkish Republic and it's Ankara is the capital. Huge, there have been huge changes. So there's no longer a sultanate, there's no longer a caliphate based in Istanbul. So all these continuities that have been running for centuries stop at that time. And then in the 1930s, what happens is that the post office refuses to deliver any mail addressed to Constantinople. It has to be called Istanbul. So I just thought at that moment, both in practical terms and in psychological terms, it's the moment where things do change. And I had to stop somewhere. So that's why I finished in 1924. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Bethany Hughes in conversation with Peter Frankopan. Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities, is set to be published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson on 26th of January. And you can read a version of this interview in the first issue of BBC World History's magazine, which is on sale now. Also in the launch issue, we have William Dalrymple on the Koh-i-Noor scandal, leading experts debating whether the West's days of global dominance are over and much else besides. You can get hold of a copy in all good news agents. And Bethany Hughes will also be talking about Istanbul and her new book at a special event at Bristol's M-Shed on Saturday the 25th of February at 7pm. To find out more details, visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And that's not all. The January issue of BBC History magazine is also on sale. 
featuring articles on the Anglo-Saxons final battles, the history of Sicily, the Stauffenberg plot, and Elizabeth I's Irish nemesis, among other things. That, too, is available in all good news agents in the UK and in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier print edition that's currently on the shelves. Well, that's about it for this week, so please do join us next time for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. It's packed with articles, quizzes, image galleries and much more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Music